You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. I was born and raised an orphan in a land that once was free, in a land that poured its love out on the And I grew up in the shadows of your silos filled with grain. But you never helped to fill my empty spoon. And when I was ten, you murdered law. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, You're listening to episode number 125. My name is Danny Anderson. I am assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I am joined today as usual. By the way, I'm still keeping the seat warm for uh, David Grubbs, for those of you who are missing him still. He is on his way, I imagine, so soon. Um, but <laughs> I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Nathan Gilmore, also of Emanuel College, Assistant Professor of English. Nathan, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Danny. Good to hear it. Uh, and we are joined by uh, Dr. Michael Farmer, uh, who is assistant professor of English at St. Car- uh, Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. <laughs> hey, you got it. <laughs> I am very confused. That's the first time I almost got it right. So, um, And today we are going to be talking about the great American novel based on a uh, listener email we received last week. And I cannot remember the name of who, who suggested this, but uh, it was a good idea, so we decided to do it. Maybe we can go in the archives and, and uh, thank them properly. But, uh, but uh, we, on that note, we have a couple of other emails, actually, to uh, catch up on. With uh, uh, Who wants to go first? I'll go first because the email came first, so it seems only fair. Um, this is from Patrick Gerber. This may be my favorite email we've ever gotten. He says, uh, hi, guys. I am an ex-literature major and a huge fan of the podcast. At some point in my college career, I turned away from literature for the dark side of academia, business. Your podcast fills a deep need in my soul for ideas and language that are not found in business writing. Currently, I run a nonprofit material reuse store and green deconstruction organization in Canton, Ohio. And I'm going to buzz market it for you, Patrick. It's thestockpile.org. So if you're in Canton, Ohio and need material reuse, I don't really know how that works, uh, thestockpile.org. Your latest podcast, he says, is keeping me engaged tonight as I write a federal grant application. Bizarrely, Pulp Fiction, My Life, and this EPA job training grant application were brought together because of your podcast. I am originally from Sugar Creek, Ohio, which is next door to Winesburg. My fiancé is from Winesburg, and her mom and brother still live in Winesburg. Also, the EPA job training grant will help unemployed and underemployed men and women get job training in our community, which includes Winesburg, Ohio. So when I heard one of you mention that you think of Pulp Fiction as a very profane 90s Winesburg, Ohio, I thought my brain had finally crashed due to a caffeine overdose or the dreaded grant deadline madness. I had to re-listen to that comment three times and then spend 15 minutes Googling to understand this reference. I am writing simply to say thank you for causing me to question my sanity, helping me break the monotony of grant writing, and turning me onto a book of for short stories that I must read. The Wikipedia entry of Winesburg, Ohio, says each story is about the struggle to overcome the loneliness and isolation that seems to permeate the town. I love Ohio, but grant deadlines and sub-zero temperatures make me think I would strongly identify with these stories of loneliness and isolation. Thanks for the meltdown and recommendation. So that's a recommendation for all of you to read Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, although I do have to point out um, the Winesburg in the book is actually based on a town called Clyde, Ohio, about which I know nothing. (laughs) Um, Yes, I know Clyde, actually. It's a little farming sort of town in the sort of northwestern part of Ohio. If you've never read Winesburg, I've always thought of that book as the literary equivalent of uh, Debussy. It's it's just this very soft, understated, lonely, beautiful, tiny pieces strung together. Yeah, he, he calls the characters grotesques, doesn't he, uh, <laughs> uh, Anderson? So, yeah, it, it's it's actually it's a beautiful little book. You're right, and I actually know Sugar Creek, Ohio. My uh, uh, wife and I go to the Amish country there to buy flour and stuff whenever we go visit home in Ohio. So oh, we should say Danny go. is from Cleveland. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if we've ever mentioned it on the show or not. 
Not a lot of people will claim Cleveland in public, so I didn't know if you'd said it. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Nathan, what do you have for us? All right. Uh, we've got an email from listener Chen Boule, and if I have mispronounced that, I do apologize. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and energy. I'm blown away at what you guys do on your own dime in creating your Christian humanist empire. I like I like that he's using that phrase. Uh, I usually don't uh, like praise or criticism offered in hyperbole, so take this comment on face value. You have changed my life for the better. Thank you. And he goes on to ask a couple questions, actually three of them. First, how much money would you need to make the Christian humanist university reality? Uh, listeners who have jumped on recently should know that's an ap- episode we did. Uh, was that episode number 50, Michael? I think it was. It was a long time ago because I was in Florida. Yeah, but it, it was one of our uh, sort of you know milestone episode subject matters. Uh, second, where would you locate the Christian Humanist University if you had enough money? And third, is that the name you would want from the school, Christian Humanist University, or is there a better name? So let's I, pause I certainly there. hope there's a better name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gilmore Academy. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I shudder to think what the mascot would be if it were Gilmore Academy. Um, you know, honestly, I have no idea because I did graduate work in the humanities and not in civic engineering. Yeah. Uh, how much cash would be involved in starting a new institution of higher learning? It would, it would learning, have to be an though. enormous amount of money, right? One would think, yeah. I don't know. Where it would be located, I think we would probably fight about it because I'm a city person and Nathan's really not, are you? Oh, I mean, I, I, I yeah, my <laughs> wife listened to the show. Uh, she and the kids are here at home, though, because school is canceled, so I'll have to say this quietly. I am a city person. Mary is not. I see. So so we would we would have to fight over whether we wanted it in Chicago or out in the cornfields or wherever. Or wherever. Somewhere with snow. I don't, I don't want to be anywhere hot. <laughs> Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, Atlanta has snow. There you go. Uh, now, as far as the name goes, like Michael said, I mean, hopefully we'd come up with something better, you know. Uh, that, that might be something. Well, yeah, I mean, that'd be something that I probably wouldn't even think of till it became something more like a reality. So, in other words, I mean, that episode was largely a, an experiment like Plato's Republic in conceiving of the contours of a good community. Uh, as far as the implementation, we're about as useful as Socrates. Yeah. I really <laughs> wouldn't want to actually start a university. If somebody else wanted to start one and have me come teach at it, I would like it. But I do not have a mind for administration. Yeah, true enough, true enough. So, I mean, I would love to see a school started on the principles we talked about in that episode, but please don't ask me to start it. <laughs> All right, so Chen Boulay goes on to make a few requests uh, for episode, well, I mean, general requests and then some episode requests. Uh, first of all, please compile a list of podcasts that you regularly consume and post that list on your blog. I love your show, and I'd like to listen to the ones that you listen to as well. Michael, uh, you want to do a pair of blog posts sometime in the near future? Yeah, let's do that. You go first, and then I'll have to go because I'm bad at blogging. Sounds like a winner. And then here are the topics that uh, Chen Boule requests for us. Uh, number one, Latin, the dead language. Number two, Frank Herbert's Dune series. Number three, Soren Kierkegaard, which is actually one that Michael and I could do. I don't know about Danny and David. Uh, number four, how to learn the skills to become a great rhetorician without going back to college. That like a book title. Yeah. <laughs> An unwieldy one, to be sure. Uh I forget what number we're on. These are actually bullet listed. Truth with the capital T. And then the final one, John 14, 6, and why Jesus, per the historic Orthodox confessional Christian faith, is the only way to be forgiven of sin and possess eternal life. Now, I will say, if you want an, uh, a perspective on that question that is not our own, uh, Homebrewed Christianity actually did a John 14, 6 call-in challenge uh, and basically they, they aired an entire episode of brief audio clips of listeners who called in and offered interpretations of John fourteen six. I was one of them. So if you want a taste of that Chen Boulay, if we don't get around to the full episode, you can go over there and hear me 
take a stab at it for an audience that's very different from our own listenership. So the truth one I would be interested in doing, we could talk about the correspondence theory and Heideggerian Althea truth, Althea truth. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm digging that. I'm digging that. And you know, Middle English notions of troth. Yeah, I think that could be an episode. I'm digging it. I, I don't know why we haven't done a Kierkegaard episode yet. Does David have any background in Kierkegaard? No. I don't think oh, so. Oh, that's why. <laughs> Danny, do you have any? Could you talk about Kierkegaard? Um, I have the cartoon version uh, comic book uh, I have that of too. him. I could, that's I could, actually I a could pretty bone. good introduction to Kierkegaard. Let's, let's, yeah, uh, I introduce is bone it, up on that. Do you have four beginners or introducing? Uh, I think it's four beginners. Yeah. I always get those confused, though. So, yeah, I could bone up and like that, but yeah. All right. Now, Danny, you might have perhaps for the first time in the show's history a write-in question. Can you explain the uh, the historical context of this artifact and then read it to us? Yes, I do have a uh, a, 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 a something was passed along to me by a student of ours who's also a listener. Uh, his name is Thor. For those of you who are uh, interested in his name, and w- fiction episode last week, and when we were talking about hermeneutics and doing interpretations of the film, and, and uh, Michael and I were particularly suspicious of uh, the possibility or, or enterprise and uh, of doing that, and and so Thor suggested it reminded me actually that there is a reading like an interpretation floating around uh, for many years that the glowing suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Uh, uh, signifies uh, Marcellus Wallace's soul, and uh, and this is what's so beautiful. And this would also explain the band-aid on the back of his neck, uh, and what it's prominent in, in a couple of scenes. And uh, and I I, uh, I had forgotten about that reading. I had heard it uh, in the past, but so there are people out there that uh, that think that there are layers, hidden hidden meanings to that movie that uh, uh, maybe we should have addressed. <laughs> yeah, and actually the the theory that the band-aid on the back of the neck is connected to the briefcase uh has been floating around in internet rumor form for some years. So, uh if you do a little bit of searching around, you can find some pretty interesting little versions of that theory. So, yeah, yeah why not? Yeah, why not? It, it works for me actually. That's a good good, good for <laughs> Thor. Uh, we just came out of my theory class when he came up with this idea. So this is, uh, oh, so this is look what you look what you're doing to people, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is this what they teach you at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs? <laughs> How is that going to help him get a job? <laughs> well, I showed him a scene from A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers um, today too. So, uh, so it, that's going to help him in, in numerous. Of course, ways. you did. Yes, of course I did. But <laughs> was, um, it, was it actually related to the lesson, or did you just want to do it? Uh, you know, it was related to last week's lesson. Uh, we were talking about Susan Sontag's essay against interpretation. And, uh, there's a particularly interesting scene in that Coen brothers movie, uh, uh, this little sequence about the Goy's teeth. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that movie. And, uh, and so it's really about the desire to interpret and impose meaning on stories. And it's, it's, it's a quite, uh, it's actually an amazing little piece of filmmaking. I highly recommend you just look that up on YouTube or something if you can. So, but uh, well, uh, thanks for those uh, emails, and please do continue to uh, contact us. We really do love to uh, read those and, and interact with listeners. It makes this uh, so much more fun. I think both Nathan and Michael would agree. Uh, but we're going to move on today to our topic at hand, which is the Great American Novel. Um, and I'm just going to start this off with Michael. Uh, in lieu of a dictionary.com definition of the great American novel, I thought maybe we could start off with some personal impressions of what that term signifies. Uh, what qualities come to mind when you try to conjure up an example of the great American novel? And maybe to give us some concrete notions about the concept, uh, link a book or two, or a uh, link to a book or two that has been traditionally perhaps labeled as such. I, th- I think the the basic idea behind the Great American Novel it is a novel that is artistically really really good, of course, but also a novel that somehow exemplifies what it means to be an American. And you should put all of the words I just said in capital letters, because because right right it, it is it is the sort of it, it is the sort of thing that would appear at a Disneyland. 
Disneyland version of what it means to be an American, or you know, it could be something much deeper than that. It goes it goes both ways. the The traditional example, and I hope neither one of you were going to talk about this because I'm going to talk about it, is uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is which is an interesting case because it begins as one type of great American novel, and it ends up being a completely different type of great American novel. So, the people who originally proposed Huck Finn as the great American novel would say that it involves, you know, this American sense of escape and freedom and the frontier and equality and democracy and all this other stuff. And then eventually what it, what it came to be seen as was uh, it is a novel that displays America's weird attitude toward race in many of its forms. And so for that reason, you might still call it the great American novel, even if you think it's unpleasant racially, which I do. Um, so, yeah, that, that is the basic thing that comes to my mind, that this, this idea that by reading this novel, you will somehow understand what it is to be an American. The way, for example, if you, if you read all of Shakespeare's works, you might understand what it is to be British, although I'm not sure British people talk about themselves in that way. Right. And also in the 18th century, at least, uh, the early Americans were claiming Shakespearean as the quintessentially American playwright. Is that true? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Jefferson, I know, did. I, I believe John Adams might have as well. Based on his Democratic flavor? Republican, yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Based on his, his egalitarianism? Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that that, that leads to a whole other set of problems, right? Can the great American... Well, first of all, can the great American novel be a set of plays? But can it can it be can it be written by someone who not only was not from America, never visited it? Right. And he doesn't even does he refer? I think there's one reference to America in Shakespeare. But I yeah, and the Merchant of Venice, I believe, but I'm not even sure on that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, my Shakespearean pipes are getting rusty. And I know that I know <laughs> that a lot of Americanists read The Tempest as saying something about America, even though it doesn't directly. Right. Right. So anyway, that's what I think. What about you, Nathan? All right. The the example that I had in mind was actually uh, Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. And again, this is a novel that comes out of a very distinctive moment in American history, the Great Depression, the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. Uh, and, you know, it is a novel whose characters are wrestling with the central questions of American identity. So because I'm not an Americanist, I can sort of look at this novel through these, you know, rose-colored glasses uh, and see, you know, Jim Casey and Tom Joad as, you know, really characters who explore questions of community, of religion, of economics, of all of these sorts of things. Uh, it doesn't help that, or it doesn't hurt rather that, you know, it's sort of this, uh, glorious, you know, quasi socialist narrative going on, uh, which, you know, is, is there in, uh, I won't say all, but a lot of the candidates for great American novel. Uh, so it, it serves a subversive function, uh, which is often not what you think of when you think of sort of the great national bodies of literature. Uh, Danny, how about you? What's your great American novel to lead off? Well, I think the idea of subversion that you just introduced is, is, is a really interesting one because in, in any all, – mo- all the examples that are coming to my mind, maybe I'm a subversive and don't know it, but uh, maybe all the examples that are coming to my mind though – they all do have that sort of flavor of critique uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, and, and so it isn't um, – I can't really think of an example of a great American novel that is celebratory wholly. And perhaps that's because a novel like that just wouldn't be great because it just wouldn't be okay. a great novel artistically, uh, uh, as, as, as Michael was saying. But uh, an example of what I'm talking – of what uh, I'm thinking about when I hear this term is The Great Gatsby. Let's just sort ah, of yeah, stick, sure. with, uh, stick with uh, sort of the classics, I guess, uh, the obvious ones. Uh, this is a, a rooted in a specific moment where America is very sure of itself uh, in a certain way. Uh, and, and it, it really kind of pokes holes in that as a way to expose something that is, uh, not celebratory, but still yet kind of beautiful. And, and it does sort of capture an exuberance while still, uh, holding that exuberance into some sort of critical light. And I, and I feel like that's the 
kind of key component for me is recognizing uh, greatness, but understanding the, the kind of underbelly of that greatness uh, and, and what that means to be an American. Now you've got me trying to figure out if there is a great American novel that does not serve as a form of critique. I mean, not a great American novel, capital letters, a great American novel with G in, in small letters anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, I mean, some older, I mean, what is Moby Dick trying to subvert? Oh, everything. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Your, 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 your very attempt to read it. I, 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 I would, I would, uh, I would be slow to point to Moby Dick as an example of a straightforward celebration of America or anything well, no, no, else. No, no, no. It's not, it's not a celebration, but it's also not a social critique. No, that no, I, it's not a social novel. Okay, really. all right. Okay, I was going to say, have I missed something entirely? Although I don't know, <laughs> as, you're, as I'm going to say in a few minutes, the people who originally posit Moby Dick as a great American novel do so because they think it celebrates American democracy. What? Yeah, it's a it's a common <laughs> argument, but we'll get there. What right. about? And, and, I, and and I haven't like, read this. What about Cather's O Pioneers? I that's that's a Cather I haven't read, but my, I, I've not read it either. I. <laughs> My understanding is that it is a celebration, but I don't know, so I shouldn't say. Okay. Have you read that, Danny? No, I haven't, and, and my mind is still twisting, like you know, desperately searching for something that is purely celebratory. That, yeah. that we sort of, yeah, I, I cannot even think of it. I mean, there, that just seems to be part of the the definition is some sort of a conscientious consideration of Americanness. Um, I've, I've often thought that if America is a great country or to the degree that America is a great country, and I'm no real patriot, as I'm sure our long-time listeners know, but to the degree America is a great country, it's a great country because of its self-consciousness. So we're a great country because if we are, to the degree we are, it's always because we doubt ourselves, which means the most American thing to do is to subvert. Americanness, hmm. mm-hmm. right? And I, and I think that's you know held up high every January when we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Right, right. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and um, well, I I asked a question that led me to a question that I can't answer here. So I guess that's a good, <laughs> yeah. a good place to start. Um, well, let's move on then uh, to sort of contextualize the notion of a great American novel. Wait, I've uh, got it. I've got it. What about uh, – well, this kind of subverts it, but what about Leaves of Grass? There's an awful – and it's not a novel. It's a, it's a collection of poems. There's an awful lot in Leaves of Grass that's a celebration. But the problem is it's subversion at the same time it's celebration. So never mind. I'm sorry. Right. And, and, and it's not a novel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's important. It's not just a uh, categorical like uh, incident. I mean, I think that poems can be sort of elegiac in that way, and in and, and, and a way, novels don't necessarily lend themselves towards being. All right, uh, that's interesting. I wonder though, is there a do we does anybody ever talk about the great British novel? Like, uh, like is there any, uh, it just seems to be a almost a peculiarly American. They, like, they don't phenomenon. need it because they have an epic poem. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Well, that leads to where I'm going here. Yes, I was going to uh, say, let's not steal all of my thunder before I start, please. That leads to I don't have question. a whole lot of thunder. <laughs> he has so little to say, we can't take it away from him. <laughs> well, Nathan, let baby for some have reason, his bottle. <laughs> for some reason, I'm thinking of you when I ask this question. Then I. I purposefully arrange this uh the national epic is a genre that goes at least back into antiquity if there's that's even that the grammar of that sentence doesn't make any sense but uh can you uh give us some background on the role of the national anthem epic as both a artistic and ethical device and in what ways does or doesn't the great american novel take up that tradition one thing about epics uh you know they are certainly narratives the way that a novel is uh, but a couple of material tr- conditions really set them apart. Uh, one of them is that, unlike an epic, a novel actually has to sell copies. Uh, and I don't think we should understate that. I mean, one of the things about the great American novel that makes it American is that it is capitalist. Um, now, the the national epic, to go back there, I mean, really arises out of a variety of circumstances. But, I mean, a few sort of broad groups... Uh, you have the poems that kind of get adopted ex post facto as national epics, and of course, you know Homer falls into this. Um, well, talk Don- about subversion. Oh, sure, sure. 
uh, and Dante falls into this, and again, talk about subversive. Uh, but these are poems that arise out of particular historical moments, but then later on get picked up as the sort of national poem, right? So, you know, whereas, you know, Americans give a Pulitzer Prize for Literature, Italy awards a Dante Prize. Uh, now, another class of national epics, though, are actually commissioned by imperial powers, usually, uh, in order to, and I'm going to use some theory language here, but in order to legitimate and in order to give a backstory to the political order as it stands. So a couple big examples of that would be the Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which seems to be commissioned by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and then more famously, the Aeneid, uh, which is the national epic, national epic of the Roman Empire. All right. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that doesn't encompass everything, of course, but those are two of the really uh, common background stories of these poems. Now, as an ethical device, the national epic is interesting because it is a narrative whose protagonist uh, is going to undergo some of the challenges that faces the nation in a microcosmic form. Uh, certainly Gilgamesh fits that role, that model. Certainly uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey do. Uh, but they're largely going to focus on a character whose actions uh, define what's going on. All right. So, uh, you know, Dante is the obvious exception to that. But as far as that goes, you know, the Oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, the the movement of Aeneas uh, from the fallen city of Rome to the Italian peninsula is really an allegorical journey of the Roman people into their destiny. Uh, so the great American novel, uh, what makes it interesting, like I said, is that it's really not commissioned by the civic authorities. And usually it's not something that gets, you know, sort of picked up later, but rather it has its beginnings in a market system in which enough people have to purchase it at a bookstore of some sort uh, and read it and sort of internalize it as a great story in order for it to become that great American novel. Now, Michael, do you think I'm overplaying that distinction or do you think that's basically on? I had not thought about it, but it makes total sense to me that the, the novel is something that goes out into the marketplace. You know, it's worth noting um, – at least one country has a novel for its national epic, which is Spain. Ah, yeah. Right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, Don Quixote is clearly the national work of literature of Spain. Um, they have an epic poem, too. I think it's called – isn't El Cid? Is it not the, the name of it? I never knew that that was a poem. I, I, I'm oh, familiar I with the movie. Poem. Well, no, I'm familiar with the movie, but I've never <laughs> – Oh, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's some sort of work from before Don Quixote. Right, but right. Clearly, Don Quixote yeah. is the national epic of Spain. Uh -huh. And it's an epic in every sense except being a poem. Right, right. Although it it's fairly subversive in its premise too. Absolutely. I mean I think great art is subversive, frankly. I don't think that's necessarily just an American thing because the more we think about this, the more everything great seems to be subversive except for maybe the Aeneid, which I never thought was all that great to begin with. Oh, and even it subverts a bit, doesn't it? Because you feel for Dido in a way that – you wouldn't if if you were supposed to see Aeneas as just a raw raw hero. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Hmm. That's just, and, and the idea of uh, the market is like you've got my mind like twisting in the wind there. That's actually a really interesting <laughs> distinction um, because I mean you do think of like the fairy queen or something as being. Um, uh, a patronage sort of act, right? Oh, so absolutely, when, yeah. And so, yeah. And and although it's that, in that transitional moment, because it does eventually land in bookstores. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that is sort of coinciding with the kind of rise of. They all eventually uh, that, that land ended. in bookstores. <laughs> right, but I mean, like within a generation, not hundreds of years later. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. So, I mean, I think that there is sort of a, a definitely a, an economics of the novel, which isn't. I don't know that it's. Uh, so tied to Americanness than that economic structure as it is just the novel happened to coincide with this, like the implementation of this capitalist system. And, 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 right, and so right. I think it's just something about the novel that's, that's unique to the novel. Right. Well, but, again, back to, back to Don Quixote, think of, think of the weird things the market does to Don Quixote in book two. 
Oh, yeah. You know, where suddenly there's a book published about Don Quixote, and he's walking around with people who have read this book that's about him, but that isn't exactly accurate. And <laughs> I mean, so you get that tension built into the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to imply that, you know, America's tradition is somehow more crass because of the market, because certainly the patronage system is not a clean hands sort of system. Mm. Uh, what I was saying is that because America does not have a pre-capitalist prehistory the way that England, Spain, Russia do, uh, I think that, you know, the fact that we look for a great American novel is peculiar to our uh, recent historical genesis. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I think it has less to do with capitalism and more to do with just the novel was the ascendant form starting in the 19th century. If if a country started today, we would look for the great XYZ television show or movie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's sort of where I was going. I feel like looking back over the last 20 years, I think that we have tried to establish as a country, well, I don't know, as a country, in our country, in our national context, uh, I think you could look at sort of what Ken Burns does with documentaries as trying to tell the American story and capture the essence of Americanness. And that is very much part of a patronage system in that he was so mm-hmm. long funded by GM uh, and this sort of uh, who has this vested interest in defining Americanness. And so I think that he's a very interesting figure. I know we're talking about a completely different medium right, right now. Right, right. But um, trying to do what the, the work of the great American novel in this sort of new public broadcasting medium. And I think that that's, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's uh, an interesting way to think about what the American novel uh, was trying to do in, right. in a purely market scenario. And, and see, that doesn't bother me at all. I think it's worth looking at movies and other, other stuff because I, I hold on pretty loosely to genre anyway. Mm-hmm. But don't let go. Right. <laughs> Cling too, too tightly. <laughs> sorry, sorry. If you love something, set it free. Uh, Well, Michael, uh, most of us who know that term, the great American novel, probably learned it in college, safe to say. Uh, What role uh, have English departments had not only in establishing the terms and definitions of the great American novel, but also in making it necessary in the first place? In other words, talk a little about the sociology and maybe the economics of the culture machine. I'm going to answer that question, but first I'm going to answer an unrelated question. Um, Early Americans tend to see themselves as the new Romans. Um, This is not universally true, but it is widely true. So the the founding framers, as I like to call them, um, tend to talk about America as a new Rome because it's this land that won't stand a king. You know, it's it's the new republic. Along with that goes a peculiarly Roman anxiety. So if you read a lot of ancient Roman literature before Virgil, you get a lot of people talking about how our language isn't good enough and we're not able to say what we want to say, so we'd better speak in Greek. So you you have this um, empirical, empirical, imperial um, anxiety about Latin as a debased form of Greek and thus as the Roman Empire as a debased form of the Greek Empire in terms of letters. This all changes when Virgil comes along, right? Virgil is, Virgil is the person who takes Latin, at least in the eyes of the Romans, who takes Latin and turns it into a global artistic language. And from then on, you don't get people complaining that you can't say what you want to say in Latin because Virgil has done said it. Now, I, I think um, Lucretius, for example, does just fine before Virgil. And in fact, in, in a lot of ways, I think Lucretius is a better writer. But it doesn't matter. We're talking about the popular imagination or the literary imagination or whatever. We're not talking about my value judgments. So you get the same thing in early America. We, we, we get this notion that we're going to be a great empire. You know, we, we won the war. We're, we're, we're starting anew. We're, the, we're, we're founded on this grand ideal of, you know, democracy or the republic or whatever you want to call it on representative government, but we can't write anything worth reading. And and this is an anxiety that that you feel over and over again at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, all the way through Emerson, right, who who complains in The American Scholar that we're not – we're still bound to these old world attitudes. Our country may be moving forward, but our literature is not and our thoughts not. Um, So the American Virgil – in the sense that I've been talking about Virgil, is Whitman, which is another reason I would argue that Leaves of Grass makes a pretty good a pretty good contender for the great American novel, provided you're willing to hold on to that language loosely. 
um, because Whitman is the first person, I think really inarguably, the first person to write in a distinctively American way. You think about how colloquial Whitman's language is and how nevertheless he elevates it into something that I, I don't think anybody could deny is high art. Um, so that's where I'm beginning. My second point is the term great American novel actually comes from the 1870s from an essay. And I, I meant to write down the name of the fellow who, who coined the term, but he coined it, the great American novel. I also didn't bother writing down um, what he was writing about, uh, which novel he was <laughs> writing about. But that doesn't matter either because the, the, the actual anxiety of designating a great American novel takes place in the 1920s. Um, the First World War has just been won, and Americans are again anxious about their place on the global cultural stage. And so the question becomes, how come we don't have a grand literary tradition? How come our universities are teaching Shakespeare, and they're not teaching whatever the similar work of art is in American literature? And that's when people go about trying to figure out what uh, what the great American novel is. And, and it tends to be the first generation of great American literary critics, guys like Mark Van Doren, right? The, the, these people who, who write their books in the 1920s, and they write a lot of books about Hawthorne and Melville. And, and this is the time, especially when Melville's reputation begins to be revived because Moby Dick improbably becomes seen in some quarters as a uh, allegory about democracy because Captain Ahab is the old world and he leads everybody to their doom. But Ishmael, who represents the new American democracy. Now, that's a stupid reading of that novel. I agree. But, <laughs> but it is a reading that happens. And so the 1920s become this time when America is emerging as a military empire and as an economic empire. And by God, it needs to be a cultural empire too. So we better figure out what we want representing us. And Moby Dick is one answer. The Scarlet Letter is one answer. And uh, Huck Finn is an answer. Uh, I think all three of those novels are imperfect in various ways. And I probably wouldn't point to any of them as the American novel, especially not Scarlet Letter, which, which seems much too bound to a particular time. And, you know, uh, but uh, but that that's where it comes from. So it's the English departments of the 1920s that, that that got us obsessed with this. And you know, lo and behold, as that's happening, we get a huge flowering of American writing because uh, Americans don't dominate modernism. There's off, obviously an awful lot of great European modernist works, but we've got Hemingway, we've got Fitzgerald, we've got Faulkner, we've got um, to a lesser extent John Dos Passos, who not coincidentally in the same era writes a series of novels that he calls USA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This this is a man very consciously trying to create the great American novel. Uh Faulkner was too. I mean, I feel, I feel like what he was trying to do is establish these certain national ethic epics, uh, but located in a region, right? I mean, this yeah. is sort of the national. I, yeah. And I, I would actually put him in, in Twain's line where he's trying to say something universal by saying something very, very regional. And, and yeah. for, for that reason, I don't think I wouldn't point to Faulkner as the great American novelist either. I'm, although I love Faulkner and I think he's better than a lot of the people whom we have talked about as, as representing the American spirit. Faulkner's mm -hmm. the poet of the South. And I think, I mean, I didn't grow up in a South that looks anything like the Faulkner novels. Nothing. And yet I can recognize the place I grew up, a place of country clubs and banking and things like that as, as containing the ruins of Faulkner's world somehow. And mm -hmm. maybe people from Missouri can recognize that in Twain. I don't know. As, as I've said on this podcast before, I don't think much of Twain. Nathan, what do you think? Oh, the only thing I'd add to that is that, you know, the English department as an institution uh, is undergoing its own genesis and transformation during those same two periods that Michael just pointed to. So one of the things that we need to note is that, you know, it's not as if there were English departments running, you know, 200 years strong uh, who all of a sudden decided, oh, we need to have a great American novel, but rather the question of is there an American literature is one of the seminal questions of the American university English department in the first place. Right. Uh, so, so it's a fascinating, you know, shift in literary culture. I mean, it, it's in some ways, you know, a move into the Academy out of the cities. And, and Ter Terry Eagleton talks about this a little bit in um, literary theory and introduction about how the only reason we have English departments at all is because of the first world war. 
because all mm-hmm. of a sudden philology mm-hmm. becomes a bad word because nobody wants to associate with the Germans. So, <laughs> so all of a sudden the English department takes over for philology departments in, in English and presumably American universities. And now, at least in America, we become interested in this question. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I also see the new critics uh, standing in uh, as a replacement for the philologists. Uh, and, and I think that I always associated their enterprise with uh, the kind of general university trend towards sciences. And, and this is sort of something that seems scientific then, and it seems more like what uh, is more rigorous or whatever. Uh, and so I feel like coupled with what Eagleton saying, Eagleton saying, uh, I feel like there's also uh, a move within America to sort of, uh, toughen up a little bit in terms of the rigor of the tedious studies. movement. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that's true. But, uh, but still, I mean, no more tedious than science, I think in some ways, but, uh, and, and I do also think that coming like after the, when the GI bill, for example, uh, hits, you have, uh, the university in America being invested in by the United States government because it's it's paying for these soldiers to go to college now. And there is sort of a sense at that moment where this is sort of establishing the new America, basically. And I think literature at that time, the English major grew exponentially during that, those years. And I feel like literature was a way to establish a culture uh, amongst, mm-hmm. you know, the work, the, you know, the professional class. And, and, and not, I, not coincidentally, you get the last literary critic who will ever be a public intellectual in this country, um, Lionel Trilling, mm. in that same era, because, because the English, the English department becomes a, a, a source of cultural wisdom, in part because they're trying to define this question. Right, I mean, Trilling, to my knowledge, doesn't actually try to answer the question, "What's the great American novel?" Which even by the fifties was kind of a boring question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but you can see his entire project as doing just that, right? Because so much of his writing is about what it what it means to be an American and how you can tell from reading American literature. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's interesting. His one of his favorite. American writers is really kind of almost indistinguishable from British writers is Henry James. And so you have this, uh, he sort of almost identifies Americanness outside of American borders in a lot of ways. And so uh, he, he might have identified that way, but I think, I think Henry James is quite an American writer. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 But the trilling was, he very much, a, uh, would rather talk about British writers than American writers. It was too close to him, I think for a while, uh, for, to actually, speak about uh, it with any great length. And so for him, British culture is kind of a model for how Americans might engage with their own culture was sort of where he went in many, much of his work. But well, he saw himself as the American Matthew Arnold, right? Well, yeah. Well, yeah, everyone else did too. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, but, and I think that with the kind of, uh, there was a, that's when you have the, the cliche uh, that we think of now and who knows if it was actually true, but uh, CEOs like to be like a member of high society, you needed to know Shakespeare. You needed to know all these sort of like cult. You had to have this cultural cachet. You had to be and, Fraser and I, Crane. Yeah, exactly. And and now we've completely we don't think that at all. And, and right, it's right. Much the opposite, right? But uh, now CEOs and, get together and talk about sports. Right. I imagine. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, they have their their booths and the, the the loges of the stadiums. Yeah, but no, I, I think that. This is all coinciding with the kind of post-war GI Bill uh, uh, land land grant university, uh, and I think that this is uh, part of where our pondering of the great American novel sort of comes in because that's trying to define Americanness for a professional class, a rising professional class. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting time, but I, I I think we need to remember that these questions are born out of deep cultural anxiety. Out of out of really an inferiority complex on the part of American college professors, mm. we're not as good mm. as our British counterparts because we don't have a Shakespeare. So mm. we've got to find somebody and make him into Shakespeare, right? Which you know, I don't know. Melville's probably the American Shakespeare in a lot of ways. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I I I, I don't want to venture a guess for that. So. Well, uh, Michael, uh, let's kind of take a different track here. Uh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, Nathan, Nathan, sorry, uh, Nathan, uh, Jonathan Franzen 
uh, seems to always pop up during this kind of discussion as someone who, A, keeps trying to write the great American novel, and B, embodies an elitism that many people associate with that enterprise in the first place. How has, or if you rather, how might, the establishment of the great American novel intersect with notions of canonicity and the canon wars of the 80s and 90s? All right, so first of all, when we're talking about a canon, we're talking about, you know, the the literary an, an, analog, roughly speaking, to the biblical canon. So in other words, it's a measuring stick. It's those books which make the cut. So in the 80s and 90s, as you noted in your question, Danny, you've got a great dispute that arises from an awareness that a lot of the books that get put on college syllabi across the nation uh, tend to be sort of the classical education as European university would recognize it, uh, plus uh, a fair mess of modern authors uh, who tended to be men uh, and who tended to be of English descent and who tended to, you know, have a lot of things in common that a lot of Americans didn't have in common with them. So you get a flourishing, I think, uh, of explorations of literatures from African Americans, from uh, Jewish Americans, from Latin American, you know, largely in translation in that case. Uh, and what this, what happens is that, as we've talked about before, uh, and this is my cultural materialism coming up again, because the measure of literary importance in the American university is measured on the scale of a 15-week semester, uh, we come to realize that there's a whole lot more text than we can teach in 15 weeks, and so we have to start choosing. Now, the idea of the literary canon, uh, of course, takes its its canonical form, if you will, uh, from Harold Bloom's book, The Western Canon, uh, where he makes this argument that you know a certain list of authors uh, represent the values of Western civilization in a way that other authors do not. This immediately, and I'd say probably the opposition was there before that book gets published, but I haven't done the research on that histor historical background. Uh, it's met with a notion that what students need in 15 weeks is not to be exposed to people who have always been respected, but they need to be exposed to a group of texts that in the teaching will gain a certain degree of respect. Uh, so it becomes a battle over the semester-long syllabus. In that context, I mean, the question of, you know, what is the great American novel uh, really takes on a an ethnic and a racial tone. Uh, should it be a Toni Morrison novel or should it be a Herman Melville novel? The sex and the color of both of those novels become very, very important there in the 80s and 90s. I'd say in a way that they weren't before, uh, but certainly not in a way that you couldn't anticipate as a historian. Uh, Michael, you you are obviously more of an Americanist than I, Americanist than I am, which is to say you eat more cheeseburgers than Gandhi. Uh, so, <laughs> what would you add to that? That thankfully that battle seems to have calmed down a little bit, and and, and most people who teach American lit seem to want to teach both some classics and some new classics, as it were. Mm -hmm. That that it, it seems now that the idea is not to exactly destroy the canon, but to broaden it, or maybe to have multiple canons, and I think that's a very positive development. And it makes sense. I mean, again, this notion of the American character seems kind of stupid to me, because there is no one American character. It's such a diverse country, and maybe all countries are diverse, but America yeah. in particular is diverse, um, because it's, it's such a nation of immigrants. So it, it makes sense to, if you're going to hold on to the notion of a canon, to have frequent breaks in it and, and allow new voices, especially voices from non-white, non-male authors to come in. So I'm teaching a class right now. I'm teaching American literature, and I'm basically doing books about the American dream, which is a corny topic, but whatever. And and the semester <laughs> ends the semester ends with um, three non-white authors. It, it in, there's only seven books in the whole class, I should say, so half of them are non-white Um it ends with uh, Malamud's The Assistant, uh, Richard Wright's Native Son, and Maxine Hong Kingston's uh, The Woman Warrior, all of which I think could – I don't know if any of them are the great American novel, but all of them which engage with that stream 
and, and they add perspectives and they, they make it broader. So maybe what mm. we need is not so much the American novel as the American anthology. Mm. Mm. And then, then, then maybe we won't hate each other so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though that, uh, like I love Malamud as you know, but, uh, like to allow him as a possibility for the great American novel while, making Faulkner a regional uh, writer. Yeah, uh, fair enough. A, well, I, like but, I said, this, this is not a class on the great American novel. It's a class on the American dream. Um, mm. And, and I, I, I would, I would just say these are, these are all voices that contribute to what we think of as America. Mm. As is Faulkner. That's mm. interesting. I, you know, um, I, I agree with what you guys are saying. And I do feel like largely this, this is such an old sort of, uh, discussion that we seem to have gotten past. And yet uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think I saw on, on Facebook, uh, there was a, a, some uproar about, I believe it was UCLA, maybe I'm yeah, slandering, yeah. Um, um, having, uh, getting rid of uh, their core, or changing their major so that not everybody has to take a Milton and a Chaucer class and all this stuff and, and making uh, this more kind of uh, breaking up the canon as it were. And there was all these people sort of, you know, uh, having conniption fits about that. And, and I find it, it's interesting to me that, that when something like that happens, it, first of all, it was fascinating to me that there was still a requirement that everybody take a Milton class. Like no I, kidding. Did, I didn't take I had no, graduate school. Yeah. I had no idea that that still existed. I, I mean, I, there was, that was going away in the sixties. And, and for mm-hmm. me that that still existed, I was, I was kind of shocked by that, but then that it would still uh, warrant, I guess it's just an occasion to lament uh, the the passing of of culture, uh, oh, the, change, sure, the changing sure. of culture. Yeah, so. certainly. Well, let's not say the passing of culture because it's not I, like I, what I, they're taking instead is not culture. I adapted my phrase. I said the changing of culture. Um, people passing freak of time. out too much. Yeah. Well, people do freak you out. You can't. Too much. You yeah. can't read everything. There's a there's a lot of great books to read, right? And mm-hmm. there's a lot of great old books to read. And God knows, I want you to read the old books and read them in classes so you can talk about them and be taught taught about them by somebody intelligent. But if it's between reading only old books or or dropping some of the old books and reading some new ones, I'm going to have to go with the latter. I mean, I I don't want college students not reading Toni Morrison. Right. Although I guess I'm not teaching Toni Morrison, so call me a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You know, I I used to – I I, I have changed the way I do this American Lit class. We just have the one American Lit class. It's a survey course that's supposed to cover the entirety of American literature. I've tried to change it twice now, and it hasn't happened. Um, And and I used to stress out about it. In the first two years I taught this class, I bought – I had them buy the Norton Anthology, the shorter edition with the two two volumes, 3,000 pages. And I I tried to cover something from every conceivable era, and and we just did brief excerpts of everything. And I, I I was complaining about having to do this before my dissertation defense to uh, Dr. Doug Anderson at UGA. And he told me something. He said, you know, it's obviously changed the way I think about the class because he said, you know, you're just covering yourself. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. But deep down, you know, they can't read everything and that they have the rest of their lives to read the rest of the stuff. So just pick seven books and, uh, and, and let them fill in the gaps in the other 60 years of their life or whatever. And, uh, you know, it makes sense to me. You, if you can't cover everything, why should you feel the need to why, – why should you feel the need to try? Why not, mm-hmm. why not teach them how to read intelligently and give them a, a variety of different things to read? And don't worry if they've never taken a particular class on Milton. Yes, yeah. you would know Milton better if you took a particular class on him. But taking a class on anything and read it in English is going to help you read Milton better when inevitably if you're a reader, you're going to get around to reading them. Right. Well, um, this sounds like recent disputes in the Emmanuel uh, College English Department. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, nobody else listens to that but us. Uh, yeah, this, yeah. This, this podcast. Well, no, I, I'm just saying. I mean, the, the the question is a live one, though, because I mean, the question is, you know, what is our responsibility as a department in terms of, and I and I hate this word. I'm I'm breaking out in a rash about to pronounce it. Coverage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my answer to that in the way that I plan my syllabi is, well, I don't care about coverage. Let's read some good books together. Yeah. 
Although, you know, we're also in bad faith here because the fact of the matter is the canon, it's not like there's – we don't have an Academy Francaise that comes out and puts out the, a list of the books. Not that the Academy does that, but we don't, have a, we don't have a government organization that decides what the canon is. You know what the canon is? What you and me teach, what you and I mm. teach, and what, what all the other English professors in the country teach. So the fact of the matter is if we do leave Milton off the syllabus, we are making a statement about who's great. I'm arguing with myself here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, when I teach our introduction to literature class here at this particular institution where I teach, Manual College, Franklin Springs, Georgia, um, I, uh, the, my kind of resolution for these questions was that you're right. I cannot uh, teach everything. And instead of feeling overwhelming guilt that I don't include Joyce on my introduction to literature syllabus. Um, like, let me just think of a, of another goal I have in mind. And one of the things we try to do is we have this sort of, uh, edict to integrate faith and learning as I'm sure that everybody teaches at a Christian college has that same edict. But, um, uh, and, and so I have organized my syllabus sort of thematically to address these questions of doubt and faith and salvation and that sort of thing. And I have poetry and, and poems, that speak to those questions, and I try to uh, pick and choose uh, works from across poetry and, and plays and, and poems er, and, uh, and prose that uh, speak to these larger questions, basically, and, and, and not even worry about um, getting them the coverage of what it means to be an American citizen. To me, uh, I've just sort of redefined the class for myself as to what it is to be a Christian thinker. Uh, and, and so for mm-hmm. that, that opens up the canon for me uh, to basically anything that I think can speak to that, whether it speaks to it correctly or not, it opens up the question. And so, and, mm-hmm. and the truth is all of us, even those of us who teach English, even those of us who teach English at the very highest level, even the professors at Harvard, haven't read everything that's canonical anyway. I've never read Joyce, I have to say. I mean, I, uh, I, I think I read Araby when I was in high school, and that is the last and only Joyce I've ever read. <laughs> but but why should I feel bad about that? I can't read everything. I'm not a Britishist. Uh, it's just everybody picks and chooses, and, and that some people are going to choose not to read Chaucer as an undergrad doesn't really bother me. And I like Chaucer. Yeah, I, I, like I br- I bring it up because I was shocked that it was an option as of this recently. So yeah, or a requirement. Uh, you mean a yeah. re- requirement? Yeah, I think yeah. if they got rid of optional Chaucer courses, I might be angry. Right. Yes. So. I, I never read Shakespeare in a class until my last semester of graduate school. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, I taught Shakespeare before I read him in a class. <laughs> that would have been okay. Alan Bloom is rolling in his grave right I know, now. I, mean, I, I was uh, listening to a Walkman the whole time. <laughs> Well, Michael, we've already touched on some of this, but um, one of the functions, of, as we said, of modernism is the establishment of these counter canons that arise with the establishment of modernisms, the apostle parentheses S. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more perhaps, or if you just want to reiterate, how ethnic fiction challenges the notion of the great American novel and maybe just offer an example or two of a book uh, that is at or beyond the fringes of the canon? And that still operates as a great American novel. Yeah, or at least a great regional novel. Because I I really think one of the ways we should think about this, especially in terms of of things written in the 20th and 21st centuries, is is to stop trying to look for something that's going to represent the American experience and look for a variety of American experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think I've, I've made that point well enough answering Nathan's question instead of shutting up and letting him answer it. So I'm not going to go too far into that. But I will encourage, if you're interested in this, readers, there is a, or listeners, there is a, um, there's a book by Paul Lauder called Canons and Contexts, in which he makes a very convincing, if somewhat dry case, for multiple canons. And I, I really think that's the way to look at it. Don't, mm-hmm. don't worry about your canon covering absolutely everything great. You know, it's a guidebook. It, it gives you some ideas, and then the purpose of an English class is to teach you how to read, how to think, give you a few tools, and set you out on the world to do the rest yourself or in the grad school or whatever. I think it's mm-hmm. harder for those of us who, who teach in very small departments. You know, my wife and I are the only ones who teach English classes at Crown, and, and I think it's harder for us than it is for somebody at a, at a big state school with 15, 20, 30 
English professors because we really do feel like if we don't cover it, nobody's going to. I, I wonder yeah. if, if it might be easier at a, at a bigger school to, to say, well, I'll cover the things I know and the things I love, and then they'll take classes with 10 other people who will cover the things they know and they love. And by the end, the student will have a fairly well-rounded idea of what the state of literature is. Well, like I've said before, I don't like the concept of coverage in the first place, so I, <laughs> sure. I, I just don't even worry about that. Like I said, I mean, I, I've, I teach the sequence of European literature, and I mean, I don't even pretend to cover the entire national literatures of Italy, France, Germany, you know, Spain, Russia. I just say, all right, let's pick out some books. Arrange them in roughly chronological order and rock and roll. Right, and you know if this if this makes you want to read more Italian literature, or French literature, or whatever, by all means do it. Yeah, exactly. I think I think again, it must be easier in a school with a comp lit department where you have a specialist in Italian literature or a specialist in French mm-hmm. literature. But whatever. right, right. You know, we can't do anything about that. We can't. We can't. We can't um, multiply the size of our schools by a hundred. Well, and then there's the question again, I mean, I, and I'm always looking at the material conditions, but I mean, if the semester is 15 weeks, you know, the English major uh, usually isn't going to be much longer than, you know, let's just say 51 credit hours, just to pick a, a multiple of three at random. So, I mean, again, by definition, there's going to be a lot of books that don't appear on any of these syllabi. And probably some they read twice. Yeah, entirely possible. And that's okay, too, because, re, you know, teaching people how to reread is also important. So mm-hmm. I, I may be with you here, Nathan. Maybe we should stop worrying about coverage and start worrying about the how-tos. Yeah, and, like, to me, just to read through something because you're supposed to have read to it is sort of like collecting in a way that I don't see what the point of it is. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so like, if you're not going to, like, deal with it on a kind of a more emotional level than just having them read through Joyce to – file it away in, in their checklist or resume, then I don't really see the point. So, yeah. Right, right. Nathan, anything else to add to that question? Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the only thing I'd add is that, you know, I mean, to that discussion of, you know, the plurality of canons, I mean, uh, I, I really do enjoy Toni Morrison. I have not taught Toni Morrison, but I would hope that folks would. Again, not because... Uh, a black woman's experience is every American's experience, but because it is a category of experience that you ought to be reflecting on, contemplating, pondering, if you're going to live responsibly with American neighbors. Uh, and really, I mean, that question of you know responsibility to the neighbor is what I'm most interested in when I teach narrative fiction of any sort, whether it be Homer or whether it be Toni Morrison. Fair enough. Well, um, time to pretend we didn't just have this conversation about the complexities, <laughs> about how complex and, and really kind of fruitless this enterprise is. Uh, I do think I would like everybody to sort of name your candidate for the great American novel and offer a, a whatever kind of defense uh, you would like to. Uh, Nathan, you want to start and then pass it on to Michael? Yeah, and I'm afraid I'm going to snitch Michael's, but he's done a Ph.D. in American Lit, so I'm sure he's got plenty of arrows in his quiver. Uh, my candidate is uh, In the Beauty of the Lilies by John Updike. Uh, this is a novel that follows four generations of an American family uh, and really explores the relationships between faith and cinema in the lives of those four, four generations. Uh, it is one that explores questions of religion uh, in, in some shocking ways at parts. Uh, it digs into questions of you know parent-child identity it really is one of those novels that, you know, I finish it and I really do think there might be an American culture. Uh, so my candidate is John Updike in The Beauty of the Lilies. Michael, what have you got? Keeping in mind what I said about not paying attention to genre, I'm going to suggest if there is a novel that represents the American experience, it is not a novel but Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, <laughs> which which – to the degree it represents it, it is because it creates it. It creates the idea of what the American is supposed to be, how he is supposed to live, what American success looks like, what American values look like, and then to some extent I think the rest of American literature is a reaction against it. That's interesting. Well, I guess to no one's surprise, I'll go with Philip Roth. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I will name actually American Pastoral, uh, even though it's not necessarily my favorite of his books. Um, I think that 
it has this sort of gravitas, uh, that sort of aspiration of uh, uh, including American in the term, uh, in the in the title, is one way he does it. But it's also it's intergenerational, it's historically uh, situated. It, it looks at a, a vibrant, a very violent and and uh, fascinating time in American history, the sort of uh, Vietnam protest era, and and it tries to trace the reverberations of those conflicts through not only history uh, to the current, to current day, but also, also through individual people caught up in history. And, and I feel like that really does um, grab like what it is to be a human being general. Let's be um, honest here, but particularly, I mean, let's, since we're talking about American novels, I mean, American history is in much, uh, in many cases uh, about grappling with being an American in history. And, and so, and I feel like uh, this novel uh, takes a swing at the fences uh, to do that, and it is a a great novel that um, I think everyone should probably take a look at. You're not going to pick the great American novel? <laughs> no, I gave that to Nathan. Uh, I had an extra <laughs> copy of it. I put it in his box, and, like he thought he had to read it by today or something. So, yeah. um, no, I didn't. I did not. I'm not going to choose that one. So, I thought about Augie March, uh, eventually yeah. Augie March, um, but that's very uh, it's picaresque and uh, it has a sort of a different uh, feel. But I went with Roth, so. Um, well, um, uh, what are we talking about next week, guys? Well, Pete Seeger died, um, this week. So next week we're going to do a sequel to our, our country music episode about American folk music, including Seeger. Awesome. Including Seeger. Uh, talking about being a man caught up in history. He saw plenty of it. And so that, that's, a, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a terrific, uh, uh, topic. Well, uh, until next time, please uh, send us an email. Uh, we are thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or visit the website at christianhumanist.org and, uh, and uh, drop us a line, give us suggestions, give us feedback. Uh, this is something that makes the show fun to do and hopefully more interesting for you. I want to thank you guys for uh, indulging me with this conversation. I had a really good time. Uh, and uh, so Nathan uh, and uh, Michael, take a, have a nice day. <laughs> And uh, have a good week. I'm very, I'm awful at closing these things out. I don't know if you've noticed. So I'm just going to go to the tagline. Uh, Until next week, uh, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. I was born and raised an orphan in a land that once was free. In a land that poured its love out on the moon. And I grew up in the shadows of your silos filled with grain but you never helped to fill my empty spoon and when i was 10 you murdered law with court rules